Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sibarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, tribute editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's 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 a big day in the Lehman household. I feel like we covered this last episode, but I'm gonna re-up it because this is now a theme of my life. My child is going to a basketball game today. You know, he got up in the morning, like every morning, because two-year-olds shouldn't need to reinforce things a lot. And so every day it's like, let's talk through the schedule. This morning it's like, you get up, we're going to go to school, which is a daycare, and then we go to Nana's house. And then after we go to Nana's house, we're going to go to a basketball game with mom. And by basketball game, I mean a middle school basketball game at the school at which my wife works, which is still- And, and like, which I attended. And, and which, which I attended. attended. Yeah. And which, yes. is, which is still going to be the highlight of the week. Although apparently, so so he's been to a number of professional games. Well, not professional. He's been to a number of college games. No professional games because I'm, he's not awake at those hours. And I'm not spending money on that for a two-year-old. But apparently, as it turns out, middle schoolers are worse at basketball than like college players are. And so apparently he stands on the sidelines or in this, on the bleachers and occasionally he'll yell, they keep missing. <laughs> they miss shots. <laughs> my, kid is, uh, my, 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 my kid is a heckler. He's a heckler. Um, he's a heckler. He, you know, he's, he's does, does the school does the school jump down his throat for the negativity that he's projecting over the field? <laughs> Sports are supposed to be positive. I, everyone's participating. What? He's um, he's pointing out that there are failures in sports and that some people are worse at it than others. What kind of sick monster are you raising, Charles? Oh well, my well, god! Well, well, the plus side, we taught him like not to get upset when he misses, which is he plays basketball, which is frequently. Although he gets the ball at a surprising, surprising percentage of the time for a two-year-old. No, but I was, I was saying, I was saying before we started taping that like this is converting me into a sports guy. Like I've learned to start enjoying watching basketball, which is like you know I, I'm not for many years been sort of performatively anti-sports. I think sports are fine. I just never have the like brain bandwidth to pay attention to it to the degree that some of my peers do. But now I'm like, I guess I have to get into the NBA because you know my child's gonna like make that his his life's goal is to to be a you know the first like five foot ten jewish white nba player <laughs> so so speaking of including minorities in sports <laughs> such as such as five foot ten jews in the nba charles what are we what are we talking I'm about today getting my wife's jeans no so our topic this week is sports writ large the sports industry is in the united states alone is probably something like an 80 billion dollar business it suffuses media culture millions and millions of americans watch sports every day but we're interested in sports as an institution sports as a cultural institution and particularly the turns that it's made in the past several years Obviously, you know, this is institutionalized. We like to talk about contemporary progressivism, sensory ideology, wokeness, et cetera. And few places have seen that less, uh, more so than sports. Or in few places, the disjunction more, more obvious. One of, the, one of the things we're interested in is the progressive turn in the NBA, in the NFL, and the apparent or the seeming disconnect between the fans and what the major league teams want or the values that they're espousing. How is it possible? Part of the question is for these teams to be so clearly on board or for these organizations to have been maybe still, maybe not so clearly on board with a particular agenda that is alienating to millions of Americans who consume their product. But I think we're also interested in sort of the cultural function of sport generally. Why do people care about sports? Why should we care about sports? What do we make of the rights, certain online rights backlash against sports? Really a pretty broad conversation. Uh, Sibarian, what's, what's, what's your take on this? Yeah, well, so I mean, we are we are two nerdy, unathletic Jewish guys. No, no offense, Charles, but I I think I think no, that's, that's right. a fair that's description correct. of you, right? So so I'll I'll be honest. I I don't follow sports very closely. I, like you, I I have no objection to them. I think that they're fine and probably even good on balance, right, for society. But yeah, it, it, so it's not really my thing. But I guess what I would. What I'm interested in, and I'm genuinely kind of agnostic on this, is, is to what extent the the cultural controversies of the past few years in sports, to, to what extent are those genuinely new or, or a departure from what's come before? And to what extent are they just a continuation of kind of normal athletic politics? Because sports have always been political to some extent, even though they're coded as neutral, right? Like the, you know, push to integrate the 
integrate baseball, Jackie Robinson. There's always controversies over the Olympics and World Cups and where they're being hosted, say, if they're being hosted in a country like China or Qatar, right, most recently. So, you know, I, I think that the left sometimes when you when you criticize the wokeification of sports will be like, well, sports have always been political. And the truth is they're absolutely right about that. I I am agnostic as to how much of the controversies over kneeling and sports teams making crazy statements should be thought of as just intensification or continuation of what's come before versus to what extent they really do represent a break with the past. And as I say, I have no real strong views on this because I'm not a sports person. Charles, what's your your overall take or area yeah, well, of interest? You know, our, our, our guest very much is a sports person. And, and I think he we were saying beforehand, it's, yeah, we're, we're going to bridge the sports person, not sports person divide. It's going to be great. You know, I think I, I'm, I'm interested in this as a subset of the sort of classic question that we hit on in the show a lot, which is why do pro- nominally profit-motivated entities make ideological decisions or, you know, make seemingly anti-profit decisions that are ideological in character, why do corporations go woke? What's the reason for it? Part of what I'm interested here is that it seems like a lot of the driving force, you know, sports are a peculiar labor arrangement. They're not inside. I think it's the, the, the MLB is not subject to or has its own rules regarding unionization and contracts as a unique entity. Our, our guests can tell us more about that. So, but, you know, it's, it, sports seem like a place where the players are simultaneously a major driver of a lot of the progressives in the past several years, but also often have fairly peculiar beliefs. Like they, they aren't drawn from, from the, the, you know, white collar, highly educated classes that we're used to blaming all the problems on. So I think that's, you know, the, the, the phenomenon of why players do what they do is very interesting to me. How sports interacts with class, no ideology interacts with class, in other words. Very lightweight topics. A great guy to talk about all of this with is our guest, Ethan Strauss. Ethan is a, is a sports reporter who runs an independent substack, House of Strauss. He covers sports culture and the intersection of the two, really a variety of topics. As now as an independent reporter, formerly a sports journalist throughout his career. Ethan, welcome to Institutionalized. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I like how Aaron's explanation of why he's been in the sports is, is that, or for the both of you, that you're both unathletic Jewish guys. And so I don't <laughs> know what my excuse is as to why this is my, my website and my focus. But I am thrilled to be here and discuss all these weighty issues. And isn't it interesting that something so silly intersects with such weighty issues? I think that's part of the absurdity that my website covers, that even if you want to dismiss all of this as bread and circuses, it is at the very least a mirror of the culture and some of the more important issues happening within it. Yeah, so 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 we like to we like to start with sort of a, an opening provocative question and here also tie back to both what you just said and also to my opening comments. Let's talk for a minute about Kyrie Irving. Just, yes, just like get right yes. into it. So 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 Kyrie Irving, NBA player, post little light Holocaust denial, nothing, you know, just just moderate Holocaust yeah, yeah. Not 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 nothing major. But it seems it seems apparent, you know, his it's 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 in some senses not surprising that the guy like Irving espouses like some fairly wild conspiracy theories. So what do you what do you make of that sort of mismatch between like Irving's Irving's like downscale or you know down class beliefs and the 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 sort of lofty high status ideals with which he is nominally associated with which the nba tries to associate itself like what do you make of this match between the nba's you know progress pmc wokeness and Kyrie Irving being a lunatic oh my god this is we might spend the entire podcast on this because me. i'm good Kyrie, he's such a tiresome person in many ways and i don't think is a wellspring of good ideas i talk to people who worked with him and they say that his process it's just watching Instagram video after Instagram video after Instagram video. Back when he was considered to be a lefty and he said that, hey, maybe the world isn't round, maybe it's flat. Dave Zirin was protecting him and saying that, well, in addition to calling him a modern Muhammad Ali, and I don't know if he said Nelson Mandela, Ali was definitely in there in the Zirin that he was trolling people cleverly and then i talk to people who have worked with them they go no he just he just thinks the world might be flat that's just that's just what he thinks and it's so he's not a wellspring of great ideas but at the same time he has this bartleby the scrivener affect this ethos where he is so disagreeable but he reveals the absurdity 
happening around him just by not willing to go along with the crowd and with, with whatever's going on. And hey, I'm not going to take the vax. Take the vax. I'm not going to do it. You should really do it. No, nah, I'm not going to do it. And people go crazy and they get so angry. And in the end, on that issue, I think he was pretty validated. He didn't need to take the vaccine, regardless of the draconian efforts and the mayoral fiat in New York that was saying that he had to. And the media pressure, I think, was revealed to be authoritarian and dumb. Some might disagree, but at least that's how I see it. And I think that's increasingly how more and more people see it. So he's this odd figure in the whole sports world, so generative of news. You say the downscale beliefs mixed with the kind of PMC influence that the NBA has. Well, Kyrie is kind of of that of that latter ilk. He went to private school. His dad was in finance after being a player. He also, I think, is an unusual person in part because of tragedy. He did not grow up with a mother. She died. She died young. And so he is a strange guy. And here's the okay. I'm going to tell both. This is the Wilkins thing. Maybe that's been said on your program. I think he got more criticism for sharing an Instagram clip of a black Israelite book slash movie because of the Kanye thing. And there was just something in the air in the culture that the black celebrities are turning against the Jews. And even though Kyrie just shared an Instagram clip, I feel it was a, a hundred times a bigger news story because Kanye is talking Hitler every other word. And I didn't think it was exactly proportional boom i'll throw that out there right we were we were racist against Kyrie. i'm throwing that out there <laughs> well 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 and and i mean and all i mean part of what's what's also under underlying this is Kyrie's views are probably not as aberrational among his yeah. peers as they are yeah. among you know the pmc right no no i've heard in the locker room, all sorts of conspiracy theories, a lot of banter about the Jews and how you people stick together. How do you people stick together? It, it really runs the gamut in these gray areas that our culture is not prepared to absorb on, at, at the media level of sometimes admiring, sometimes a little philo-Semitic, sometimes not so admiring, sometimes a little anti-Semitic. And it really runs the gamut because these guys in the locker room did not come through the university system in the same way. And it is a very high tea atmosphere. It's dudes with dudes. And not only are they dudes, they're dudes who perform this cutthroat business, the stimulated combat in front of 20,000 people present, millions of people watching, kill or be killed, humiliate the opponent, uh, expose them to maximum cruelty if you win. It, it inculcates a far different culture and a far different atmosphere, and different things are accepted. Am I saying those different things are okay? No. But some things that happen within there are at least more understandable than if somebody behaved like that, if, say, I worked at Yelp for a little spell, than if I was at Yelp. You can at least understand why it's happening. And so the NBA and a lot of sports leagues are, are caught in between these worlds of trying to market these individuals and they're individuals where if you took their, their banter and their private conversations and you put them out in public, it would be unacceptable and they just couldn't handle it. And so Kyrie, in a way, represents the leaking out of the inner world into the outer world. So let me let me ask about that, about that sort of cultural character character, because I think that's that's sort of an, a, an essential thing, right? Like 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 intuitively, your description is totally right that sports is this like aggressive masculine environment by the way most people don't come through most people most of the players don't come through elite universities either you know they played at the college level but they were in the college they're, they're there primarily to play or they didn't play at the college level they went straight through playing the sport you get guys i think with the mlb i know baseball a little bit better you get guys who like you know came to the united states to play baseball from central america who don't speak english but they're really good at hitting a fastball so it doesn't matter yeah so i wonder given that like, oh, oh, can I just interject real quick? I've heard from my friends in, in baseball that a lot of the emphasis with these guys who come come from places like the Dominican Republic is don't hit on the sideline reporters. Don't hit on the women. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Don't flirt with them. Don't do it. I know you think it's cool, but don't do it. And continue. Yeah. Well, so 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 this relates, right? It's like why then 
Is it that certainly, certainly since 2020, but as Aaron alluded to in the opening, I think probably longer sports have been like a site for exactly the kind of progressive activist culture that we're talking about. There have been lots of high profile instances, either of players themselves pushing for stuff. And the NBA has been a good example of this. Yeah. Or you wrote a piece, you wrote a piece in June about efforts to pressure members of the, of the Tampa Bay Rays because they weren't wearing the pride logos on their, on their uniforms. So either, either we see it sports are a place where external forces are trying to impose sort of contemporary progressive norms or internal forces are. So like, how does that happen given that it's a very different population? Like basically why isn't sports more reactionary? Yeah. Well, Aaron was noting how the response will be that sports have always been political, but it's a little more complicated than that. They're so powerfully, powerfully political because they are not political by their own claim. It, it is perceived as a neutral place in the culture. And if you can shift the neutral space to a point where your politics are regarded as neutral, then that is quite the accomplishment. You have done a, a hell of a lot there. And so that's the game. I think that's why activists want the sports, the sportsmen to reflect their own politics, if they're just being strategic about it, it's that it's, it's quite the coup to do that. Now, why it only goes in one direction or has recently, I think is a more complicated question. It was going the other way in the early 2000s. Sports were a great playground for the W. Bush administration and whipping up fervor for the Iraq war and for his agenda in general. And it scared the hell out of liberals. And there was a lot of hand-wringing back then by liberals of how sports are this opiate of the masses that sleepwalks them towards towards fascism. And it's funny enough, you're, you're now seeing the reverse almost happen, where a lot of conservatives fear that sports are brainwashing people and the being woke or, or what have you. In essence, it's just a reflection of the mainstream. And so the political battle is a battle for the mainstream. And maybe one of the reasons we're seeing sports reflect values we might call left or culturally left is that that is the mainstream value. That is what corporations deem as acceptable. Now, what's funny to me is this other aspect where a lot of the influencers and media people who are big sports fans, they have this almost this, this weird narcissism where they project a bunch of their values onto the players and start really convincing themselves that the players have all the politics and the worldview that their, that their dorm room friend at Yale or whatever has, and that is incorrect. And again, it's funny when you see these controversies like Kyrie Irving happen and you see the hand wringing and you see the yelling and you see the disgust and I go, yeah, it might be like 25% of guys are like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't put a number on it, but you have to understand at some level, if you're really thinking about it, that this is a different world. It is very reactionary. Not necessarily on race. On race, it might they might check the boxes or be to the left, however you want to regard that, to the median voter. But it's men with men in a Darwinian, cruel world. And it's funny that the league, at least the NBA, I think made a strategic mistake trying to be on the forefront, on the vanguard of all of this without being able to keep it together because we're not, you know, we are the progressive league and, we have the right opinions on, on LGBTQ plus and, you know, and, and women and everything else. And it's, dude, you don't want any of your players talking about these issues, like at all. This, this is not something that you want. And I don't know how you're going to keep it all together and not have the hypocrisy revealed. And I think they got wrong footed by that. And again, Kyrie, the center of everything is a revelation of why that's a dangerous game. Let me ask. Right. I mean, go, go ahead. Actually, well, well, so what? Let me just ask for a brief you to follow up yeah, on that. go ahead. In a different direction. Just because you wrote about sort of the NBA's about face on politics. Can you, and you know, I think that's a microcosm of the broader dynamics trying to get at. So can you talk through where, when, when, when the NBA went woke and how it tried to back off and what happened on both ends? It's a great, it's a great uh, question. And now I will, I, similar to how I defended Kyrie Irving, I will say there is an argument you could make that the NBA gets more guff for being woke than the other leagues and undeservedly so. I think that it is it is coded as lefty and liberal for a variety of reasons, including that it has a lot of black players who are, you know, individualistic. And so it, the NBA, in a way, you can almost track it 
okay, here's a theory I have not written, but I believe. You can almost track the NBA's obsession and external messaging with the Democratic Party. It's almost like the NBA is the Democratic Party. In the 1990s through the early 2000s, the NBA was terrified of repelling white normies. That's what they were scared of. So they, they implemented a they implemented a dress code. They, they, they had draconian rules about fighting because there was the malice of the palace, that Pacers-Pistons game where the players were fighting fans. David Stern, the commissioner at the time, freaked out about it, and the punishments were quite severe, and they were worried about all of this. And they were, again, they were worried about how white, normal, red America people regarded the NBA and how they might be driven, you know, driven out. And so we've got to get these guys more clean cut. And David Stern, the commissioner back then, I think was a fairly progressive guy, but as with said of David Stern, that he, he lived in reality. And so that was his focus. Then Obama wins the election in, in 2008, and there's this emergent Democratic majority, and there's this sense of the future belongs to one particular side. We don't have to worry about those reactionaries in the Midwest and we can move beyond that. And not only that, there's globalization from the business perspective. We'll just make money from China. That's what we're going to do. We don't think give a shit about these idiots anymore. Fuck them. Don't care about them. What we care about are the young people. And the young people have a different kind of worldview than the old people. And so we are going to hew to that. And you're going to see a lot of triumphalist rhetoric surrounding the NBA. If you look back even five years ago, but specifically between around 2013 to 2017, there is a lot of why the NBA is hot, how they're using Twitter to broaden their reach, leaving the other sports in the dust, and how I think the New Republic was making the argument that they were using progress, progressivism to great business effect. And it was a great business strategy, which is always, that's always wonderful when you make the claim that you're doing well in business because you're a better person than your than your competitors. People really resonate to that. They don't find people who say such things obnoxious at all. So anyway, they kind of got in love with that, in love with that idea. And I think it was reflected in a lot of the messaging. And you could make the claim that they really believed some of this, that when Adam Silver, the commissioner now of the NBA, boycotted Boycott one second actually. Can can I pause? I think my thump pop alarm is going off and it's in the back of my ears is driving me crazy. I'm gonna okay. Let me let we'll me cut this out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh I can't do Thank you. I'm just I'm hearing things. We've had a storm in the Bay Area and I've been thump pop alarm PTSD. Apologies, gentlemen. Where was I? Where was I? Oh. So so you could say maybe that they really felt it and meant it, but Adam Silver makes this big move in twenty seventeen or I should say 2016 to 2017, where the All-Star game was going to be in Charlotte. And remember the bathroom bill in North Carolina? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, I don't even quite have a handle still. State legislation is complicated of what exactly, on a granular level, the bathroom bill prevented or included, but it became a thing. And Adam Silver said, we are not going to have the All-Star game in Charlotte. We're not going to do it until they changed this damn bathroom bill, which was a big deal. And I think some other sports institutions took similar similar stands, right? And eventually, I think North Carolina made some changes, and the NBA then later on had the All-Star game in North Carolina after redirecting it, I believe, to New Orleans. But it was this big media coup for Adam Silver. He got the positive attention from all the right institutions. And the way Adam Silver had started his job in 2014 upon taking over was actually this big high of media praise. He banned Donald Sterling, the old racist owner of the LA Clippers who had been caught on a, on a recording talking to his mistress, saying, saying things about Magic, how she, he didn't want her to be seen with Magic Johnson because he's black and whatever else he was saying. So that was the first thing Adam Silver did is he banned Donald Sterling, the players were possibly in a protest, and he just he just ended the bandit. So Adam Silver was somebody who, and he's a human being, was getting a whole lot of media praise. All the major publications were saying with this drumbeat that the NBA was on the up, 
And this was part of the reason they were, and it was part of the reason why the NFL was fading out. The NFL, they've always resented at some level. It's too red statey. It's too Neanderthal. They didn't let Kaepernick kneel. The NFL is fading out. The NBA is on the ride. And so I think the NBA got high in its own supply. And the culmination of it all was 2020, where, again, you have to have some sympathy for the position that they were in. They needed to somehow get the players to do a whole playoffs during the COVID condition in something they called the bubble in Orlando. And they were afraid of the players just boycotting and stopping and erasing the $7 billion that remained on the TV contract. So they were, in a, they were in a mode of whatever you say, whatever you want, we'll say anything, we'll do anything. We'll have you wear your own social justice jerseys. And that created this absurd spectacle where the players were wearing jerseys that had this range of slogans, how many more? And education reform was one of them that the, the conservative players would wear. That was the slogan that they thought was acceptable, I suppose. It's sort of a sneaky code, but it all looked it all looked so absurd. And it was interrupted. It was interrupted by Jacob Blake getting shot in circumstances that were not the circumstances that the media and the players understood them to be. But they briefly went on strike. The NBA had to smooth things over. And the way they did it was with this loud messaging. And the end result was that the finals happened to be watched by about a third of the people who typically watch a finals which scared the shit out of them. They didn't say that publicly, but within a week of the numbers coming in, Adam Silver was saying, we're not doing that again. You know, we're going to stop with the slogans now. We're, 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 we're moving on from that because they got, they got vertigo. They got freaked out. I mean, I think there's an interview with Megan Kelly and Mark Cuban where she dominates him on the numbers and he kind of meekly eventually admits that they were worse than he thought they'd be. So just as an aside, I've made these points about the ratings, and it's funny because there are NBA writers who will start arguing with me, and they'll neglect that the NBA obviously believes that the number collapse was something significant because it informed a lot of what they did. So the epilogue to all of it is that the NBA has this tightrope to walk, and the way they've done it is through something I call divide and sponsor. They created a social justice coalition for the players so the players can engage in their politics. And if anything happens and you come to the NBA and you say, oh, well, what do you think about, oh, I don't know, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict or whatever, they will point you to the Social Justice Coalition and say, the players have thoughts on this. We let the players do these things. And so I don't know if the strategy is necessarily going to work, but it's become a, a rather, I think, shrewd attempt at compartmentalizing the politics and going, hey, the players... You know, the players can do their politics. We have their coalition. Maybe we have some resources. But that is not the same thing as the NBA taking a specific approach and the NBA saying that we need prison reform or some of these efforts by the, the social justice coalition run by the players. I don't know that will necessarily work, but it is different. It's different in kind from the NHL tweeting trans lives matter or trans women are women as the NHL does. That is a different thing than what the NBA is doing. And one of the reasons why it's different is because the NBA suffered such avalanche of a collapse in viewership that it scared them and they decided they needed to change. It, it's interesting because this, this does seem, we were talking about sports, a mirror for society. This does seem to parallel what's going on in corporate America in certain ways now, where although there's still a ton of bureaucratic inertia behind all these woke initiatives, you are seeing corporate CEOs, especially in the wake of Ron DeSantis picking that fight with Disney, going, wait a minute, this could actually have some bad consequences for us if we if we let the politics get out of hand. So you you know, you have CEOs in the quoted in the Wall Street Journal saying we don't want to be the next Disney. It it does and and coming up with ways to try to stake out some more neutral territory disney itself is doing that it it seems like what's going on with the nba kind of parallels parallels that to some extent and it's complicated because there's this war but you can try to explain what the hell's happening between it's all economics and the rich are using this as a distraction to be able to pick our pockets and using identity politics and then the other side will you know like no they this is their religion and this is deeply felt, and it's not just about the money. And what's complicated is that people will 
they will retroactively angle their morality towards whatever makes the most practical sense to them. They will align all of this. And the big thing happening in sports that I don't think is getting enough attention is that kids don't really care about it for the most part, other than Charles's kid. Charles's kid is the only kid who apparently doesn't care about sports. No, there have been studies. There was recently, I think, Axios was talking about a a survey that, that keeps all the league commissioners up at night that shows the generation after Gen Z, only 15% of them say that they enjoy watching sports, 15, not 50. And I think there's enough data to suggest that this isn't just some passing phase. This isn't how kids were like when we were kids. This is new. Kids are looking at other forms of entertainment. They're just watching People play video games or, or who knows what else. They're just mm-hmm. not as into the tradition of sports and going with dad to the ball game. That's just not something they're into. And so there's this existential panic in the sports world. And how they're approaching that manifests itself as, and maybe just to be Straussian, we should come up with a term other than wokeness because wokeness is now one of these terms where people feel like it's what the bad people say if they're a liberal. But whatever you want to call it, if that's our ideology, wokeness, this is a way that, say, the NHL is engaged in to try to get young fans. The NHL is so freaked out about this that they have a weekly standing meeting with young teenagers to discuss possible paths towards making the sport more popular with kids. They, they are, the NHL is consulting with literal children about their business practices. And I think there's a lot of data that suggests and evidence that suggests that they're actually listening to the kids. That's a reflection. That's a reflection of how the direction sports is taking in terms of its messaging is informed by this fear that the, the children are tuning it out. So, so one thing I want to ask is we've been talking about the leagues, right? But there, there's obviously a, a distinction between the leagues and the teams. The teams are these hierarchical top-down entities that are controlled by a single owner. They're, I think, mostly privately held, not publicly traded, though there's exceptions. And in theory, you might expect that structure to sort of undermine some of the DEI bureaucracy because you have the players who are less woke, and then you have, like, the guy who owns the whole thing. And there obviously are people in between, but probably relatively less of those managerial roles than in, in, you know, like Amazon say, right? I I would imagine there's less layers, you know, between the head of the Knicks and the Knicks players than there are between Jeff Bezos and like the, the people who are actually on the warehouse stores, you know, the where the warehouses moving shit around in Amazon. But it, but then there's the league, which is kind of a professional organization and separate and, of which the teams are a member. So could you talk a bit about the structure of the league versus teams? Kind of where do you think the wokeness is coming from? Is it more from the league and then that kind of just affects the teams? Is it the teams and then that filters up to the league? Is it something else? I mean, there's there's a number of different causal stories you could tell here. This is such a complicated question. And I, I could just focus on the NBA specifically because there are different power centers and the league is based in New York City on Fifth Avenue. I used to work for the league right out of college. And in a way, the, the analogy would almost be England to the colonial states or provinces or whatever, the colonies, yes, during the revolutionary period, because the league is run out of LA by the agent. So it's, it's a funny thing. It's the, the, the league office and the commissioner are in New York and they have certain edicts that they can hand down that can shape the structure of everything. But then you have this decentralization of every owner being a fascist king in his own castle who then passes the team rights down to his children. I say his, there's, there's one woman who owns the team, Jeannie Bush. She got it from her father. And so those are their own power centers. And then you've got the players and the agents and the league in many ways is run out of LA. And then there's another factor as well. You say, where does the wokeness come from? I think some of it comes from the social media accounts because that's the overt messaging. This is a place where leagues are afraid about getting sued and about how gender unequal their numbers are, because I don't mean to shock anybody. This is 
you know, this is dangerous stuff right here. What if I told you that that men typically are more into sports than women? I mean, I just you'll never canceled, canceled, canceled. Most controversial thing ever said on the show. It's horrible. I know, I know. It's that's that's why you'll never hear that said on ESPN. Yeah, but it's true. So you've got a talent pool problem, but men tend to be worse at social media. Men tend to be worse in terms of their letters, you might say. So the social media managers are disproportionately young women who often, on average, have different values than, say, what goes on in the locker room. And if they are jumping in with both feet, and I don't know who from the NHL decided to say that trans women are women or, or whatnot, but let's say that that was just the media manager going rogue. Do you have, you know, the wherewithal? Do you want to take this on? Do you want to fire that person for doing that? In many cases, the answer is no. So there's almost this benign neglect that is happening, if you do regard it as benign, where the people running the media accounts will kind of, they, they will go in the direction of the current thing. And if it, and they, they can be fairly secure in knowing that they probably won't be punished. And so I think that messaging comes from there. And then there's this wagging of the dog effect where the players are not idiots. They, like actors, want to say whatever is going to get them praise. So whatever's happening in the culture and on social media, they're going to often say things to get the response. There are all these NBA players who say glowing things about the WNBA that they do not fucking believe at all. But they just know it's an easy applause line. So they know if they praise the WNBA, they'll get happy retweets or whatever. So that's that's another that's another aspect of it all. And I could probably find more aspects and, and think about more ways that the messaging comes out as it does. So completely diverged from what fancy. Now, the NBA is different from the other sports because the average NBA fan votes Democrat. There's data that suggests that 40% of NBA fans are black. It's a different milieu, right? So I think that also informs what messaging that you might put out there, or you would think so. Because really, I cannot actually come up with a way to show that the NBA is more liberal in its outward messaging than the other leagues are right now. Right. And so maybe that's the most interesting finding of all <laughs> as we try to figure out why it just does not matter whatever the fans think. So let me let me ask about just to go in a slightly different direction. Actually, you've written about you 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 wrote a piece. I'm, I'm gonna get the oh yes, it's called "Pity the Zoomer Athlete," which you basically talking about like the you know the, the 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 question of the piece is like why are young athletes today so depressed, so unhappy? Like you know these people make ten, twenty, thirty, forty million dollars a year. They're incredibly successful. They're highly you know they they've great to the cultural cash, and yet they're all sort of in their own heads all the time about their own unhappiness it's it's a photo of who's Naomi Osaka yeah uh, Naomi Osaka tennis star yeah have the article sort of a great example so 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 I'm, I'm interested in this because you know I think these this is connected to the cultural shift can you talk through how you think about sort of the the effective state of players today the trajectory and how it's different and well this gets yeah this gets back to the emerging youthful generations as well where not only are they more into they're not as into sports they're more depressive. I mean, there's a lot of survey data to, to suggest this. And the reasons for why are complicated. But the ultimate upshot of it is that, at least in the sports context with athletes, we're seeing more and more athletes who get to the pinnacle and they don't seem very happy, which I think reduces the interest in sports. Because if you see somebody who is manifestly depressed, then you kind of lose some of your reason. Because a lot of what you're doing when you watch sports for a lot of people is renting a bit of this person and enjoying it's so parasocial and it's so embarrassing to admit it but you're almost enjoying their glory vicariously and if glory to them is being fucking miserable can i curse is that okay i'm sorry is being miserable then you know there's a there's a reduced there's a reduced reason to really be into it but the odd part about this all is that this is all being praised Right? That's the strange thing about it. I could describe this dynamic to you and we would go, yeah. But the weird part about it is that the athletes who are acting this way, Osaka was just, I mean, received so much praise in the media and Time Magazine, I believe. Let me look up uh, 
Uh, oh, Simone Biles, for instance. Simone Biles in the Olympics didn't end up competing. I think she had something called the twisties, she said, where your proprioception is off, which I think is dangerous for a gymnast. But I don't begrudge her declining to participate. I know nothing about gymnastics, but what was odd about it was when she said that she was taking care of her mental health and not participating was the media celebration. And this sounds very cliche and anti-participation trophy, but some cliches are kind of true. And it seems like the media, the hive mind, is more into heralding weakness than heralding toughing it out and gritting it out and not making a big deal of your problems. And what it's doing, it seems, is incentivizing more people to wallow in their problems, which I don't think is a successful strategy for many of them to actually mitigate their problems. I think DeMar DeRozan, the basketball star, was kind of a good example that led to a bunch of examples that weren't so good because he talked about his depression and he talked about how he overcame it. And he talked about how he's doing better as a basketball player. And that was kind of a good example of how somebody could be open about what they were going through without being totally destroyed by what they're going by what they're going through. But it's now led to a trend where everybody just seems to wallow and that doesn't improve things. So it's an example of how sports are informing a sense of the normal and reflecting a sense of the normal. And I think we're in an era where the normal kind of sucks. So it's yeah. an example of that. Can I make an, I want to make an observation here that, that might, sure. now it's my turn to get myself canceled, but it seems like the common denominator in a lot of your answers is feminization has made sports worse. I'm putting that bluntly, but you, know, you talk about how, but you talk about the, you talk about the social media managers who, who tweet this crap, all being women. Yup. Right. Okay. That, that's one example. Then, 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 then. I mean, the 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 stuff about openness and talking about feelings, kind of beyond what's warranted, kind of feminine thing. Simone Biles, right? Or who? Yeah, the Simone Biles, right? The gymnast, right? She, yeah. she. That. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine. I think a male athlete being quite that open about it and and the reaction i mean it could happen but it, it, it was a very stereotypically feminine thing what i can tell you is if a male athlete did you would be showered in praise by the media but yes you were saying yeah sure but it's just the whole the whole thing right the the through line in all this is is a kind of both both the the increasing representation of women in the the bureaucratic infrastructure of sports as well and then that's accompanied kind of a a the feminization of sort of some of the cultural norms around sports. Yeah. On the subject of feminization, because we are masochists and want to get ourselves hated on Twitter, we'd be remiss, I think, if we didn't talk a bit about Leah Thomas and the stuff about oh, yeah. trans yeah. women in sports. I'm curious what you make of the, I think it was the swimming, there was some swimming league, but basically now in response to these controversies around trans women in sports, some leagues have actually instituted stricter rules around trans women participating, which like the sort of NBA backing away from some of the crazy cultural politics, it, it does seem like there's a backlash here. Can you talk a bit about that and where you see trans women in sports, that whole debate going in the future? Yeah, I think it was a fascinating guy. The whole, I think it was a fascinating and underrated story in how it wrapped up. And some of the people, I think, on the conservative side who have an almost fatalistic idea that things are just going to get crazier and crazier and crazier, and there's no breaks on any of this, should maybe look at it because it's a bit of a counterexample. At first, it was an example of things getting crazier and crazier because Lewis Thomas, for those who do not know, Natal male, as they say, I think six foot one, fairly broad shouldered and strong. It was swimming for an Ivy League school. God, was it Penn in my memory, I think? And the institutions were totally behind the whole the whole thing and were quite cruel to the teammates who spoke out about it. The teammates were afraid to put their names to it. But you can only really follow the story for a while on, on Outkick the Coverage, which is a pretty Trump-aligned sports site run by Clay Travis until finally, finally, bigger publications were covering it in as dry a way as they could because it was an undeniable story. For a while, you could deny it. You could say, who cares about swimming? 
it's not a big story, but then Leah Thomas started to break records and look as though the biggest records in swimming were about to be crushed in this way. And it was all coming to a head and nobody knew what to do about it. And then finally, the international swimming body, there's some translation in the Switzer French. I don't remember off the top of my head. I just remember that it's, it's, it's based in Lausanne, Switzerland. Basically, it said, no. You know, you, you, I mean, it's a little more complicated, but it's basically, you've got to be a natal, you know, female in order to, to swim and women swimming. And that's going to, that's how it's got to be. Maybe you can transition very early in life or something, whatever, whatever rule they made effectively ended it. And that was that. And then the tracking bureaucratic body similarly said, yes, 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 that, that, that's what we want to do. So it was an example of how. There was all this will under the surface to put a stop to this and to make things reasonable, but they needed somebody out there to be the first one to do it. And like dominoes, it was just others are going to follow suit. And so I think it's an example of how there there can be a limiting principle on some of these things that people don't think. And that the fact that it could come from, and if you saw the place where this was decided, it looks like a gingerbread house. It looks like a Hansel and Gretel house out there in Switzerland. And to think that they handed down a decision that has massive ramifications for all of sports, including in America, I think the, ba- the body is called FINA, F-I-N-A, it, it almost reveals that this is a bit of a Potemkin village. This is a bit of a paper tiger that once it faces actual rebuke and resistance it can't just keep going even though it seems like something you're not allowed to face or you get fired and so i think that's one of the lessons and the other lesson is how interesting is it that it came from outside the united states does that reveal that this is strongest in the united states so those are two upshots yeah i mean this is interesting too because one theme on the show is what we call institutional isomorphism, the idea that institutions tend to come to resemble each other in part through this process of kind of mimetic contagion where one person does a woke thing and then another corporation is like, oh, they're doing the woke thing. We have to do that either because they're worried about getting sued or just because they think that's what you do, you know, and we don't want to be the racist unwoke one. What's interesting here is sports, the example about swimming shows how kind of mimetic contagion doesn't always push in the woke direction. It can it can go in the other direction too, where someone finally just creates a template for resisting the woke insanity, and then a bunch of other people are like, "Oh yeah, we're doing that," yeah. you know. Yeah. Which, yeah, I think that's actually kind of heartening. Well, and it shows the value of the template, and that that's just going to be a big that's going to be yeah. a big part of who, whatever forces fight it, because I think a lot of people feel a little bit disoriented by everything that's happening and they don't know how to proceed forward in a way that feels official when they're battling officialdom. And once there is some sort of, as you say, template, then it becomes an easier way to fight it mimetically in the other direction. But I think we're still seeing the reaction build. And and who knows? I mean, I do think that the midterms was, was the midterms result was perhaps a powerful argument that the cultural backlash to this has not has not arrived necessarily. Maybe you see it in pockets, maybe you see it here and there, but there isn't enough of an aggregate public will against it to really push back on it. So we might be in the early stages of seeing it. So I think I think we want to we want to wrap up relatively soon, but I want to I want to ask one or two more things. One one sort of phenomenon we were talking a little before the show that I want to bring in here is is the sort of I think this is mostly confined to the quote unquote online right, but I put a pushback in certain right wing circles on sports, our, our reactions received left turn of of leagues by sort of the most explicitly ideologically identified conservatives. What do you make of what do you make of that phenomenon? Are they are they ideologically in error? You know, how 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 does how does conservatism and sport fit together as a as an observer of at least one of them? Yeah. It's got an element of you can't fire me, I quit because these leagues are espousing uh, messaging that would make you feel like they think you're the enemy. And that is going to perhaps alter whether you want to be associated with them. I think branding, that's a powerful thing. And people, they feel 
warm and fuzzies about a certain brand are going to be more inclined to buy the product. And I think there's a huge cohort, by the way, that has lessened its interest in sports and has not done so in an overt, I am not watching anymore. I am on strike because the sports have got too woke. It's just when they turn on the TV, it, it doesn't feel like home, right? It doesn't feel as much like something that feels normal to them. So I think sports has lost some of those people, but there's this other louder, perhaps smaller cohort, maybe you'd say the Cernovich and others who are making the point, and it is not dissimilar from the point that lefties have made in the past, the kinds of things Noam Chomsky has said, that sports are this big opiate of the masses distraction, that you rob yourself of your agency when you give yourself over to these vicarious glories and you are sleepwalking in effect. And, you know, there's something to that. That's not a crazy perspective. It's not something you should say if you're Joe Kent and you're running for a congressional office. That's not smart. That's not a commonly held belief. But it's also not insane to think that sports make you easy pickings to be manipulated by political propaganda because you are in this sort of state of reverie and a kind of stagnant state of receiving as opposed to participation. I think that there's something to that, but I also would argue that sports being popular, it often correlates at least to a society being fairly healthy. We ran an experiment. You can see there's a lot of there are a lot of confounding variables, but we ran an experiment in the spring and early summer of 2020 of not having sports. Did we like the results socially? Did we think that that was good? Do we think that, look, I don't know if that correlated to the biggest riots we've seen since the 1960s. You could say that it was the particular event. You could say it was COVID. You could say it was whatever. All I'm saying is that we ran an experiment where we took sports away and society did not look better or more thoughtful as a result of it. So I think at some level, we probably need sports at some level. It allows for cohesion to take place, for a sense of community. And even if I can't completely, completely refute the rightists or the old school leftists who see sports as a problem and a stupid distraction, I also see their potential value. Yeah, so so one of the, you mentioned this sort of old left-wing argument that sports is the opiate of the masses, and that's linked to another set of left-wing arguments about kind of mass entertainment as a form of social control. And in keeping with the theme of this episode, sports kind of a mirror of society, I want to think we maybe could close by talking about how sports have become an arena, pardon the pun, for pioneering a rather disturbing form of social control that you've written about, and that is facial recognition software. And in particular, there's this controversy. Some people may have heard about this a few weeks ago in the New York Times. Lawyers from firms that were involved in litigation against the owner of Madison Square Garden are now being barred using facial recognition software from entering Madison Square Garden. But that's not just being done to lawyers. That's also being done, as you've written about in, in various ways, to sports fans, like normal Joe Schmoes, who write critical things about the owner of the Knicks on social media. They get harassed yeah. by security, which picks them up with facial recognition and then gives them a hard time. And you've reported on this. Can you Can you talk a bit more about how this works and kind of what you see the implications what do you think the yeah. implications are because this i read this and was like holy fuck this is this is scary yeah it, it, it is scary and the sports games <laughs> yeah i mean well it's not just sports games in this in this circumstance the facial recognition bans apply to whatever properties are run by the madison square garden company which includes radio city music hall do you want to watch the rockette the Beacon Theater, just a huge chunk of the New York entertainment landscape, to say nothing of the Tao Group, which runs a bunch of restaurants and nightclubs all over Las Vegas. There's also the MSG Sphere, which is going to host the biggest event in Las Vegas. So because you say something about the owner of the New York Knicks, who is a demonstrable failure, by the way, you say something that, critical of him, you're not going to be allowed to go to certain restaurants and major venues in Vegas 
and you're going to be kicked out with the efficiency of facial recognition technology. And in the case of the Knicks and this owner, it's not just about being banned. He subjects people to a range of interactions. There's a tiered code system, zero through six. And one of the fans said video of me, I mean, not video of me, said video to me, got video of me eventually after I get a ban, I suppose. But he sent video to me of getting harassed by the security guards because he was a code three where they wouldn't kick him out of the building, but they would intimidate and harass him and tell them they were watching him and that he was in their facial recognition and not explain why and not explain any of it. So it's just to fuck with him, basically, just to just to mess with him in this very authoritarian way. And I think we can chalk this up to the owner of the Knicks being crazy. Sure. But you don't see any other owners criticizing this behavior. You don't see other corporations really criticizing this behavior. And you have to wonder about the implications of this world we're living in where we are moving faster than the law's ability to keep up. And this is not something the founding fathers ever could have thought about or reckoned with when they were coming up with the First Amendment. And yeah, you can say, hey, private companies can do what they want, but what if a select few private companies, in addition to being able to debank you, have the means now to exile you from public life? I mean, this is a real possibility. Just just, just start your, your own sports stadium. Yeah. Just start your own radio city music hall. It's just fairly simple. But I mean, yeah, start your own stadium, but it would be stadium plus. I mean, you get like a few oligarchs together who are strategically located. And I don't know. There probably are legal arguments against it that they could create some sort of cabal of exile of exiling you from public life. But I do think that there's a real concern and it's more of a concern that there's no early pushback to decide on consumers' rights. And that just doesn't seem to be a cool topic right now. But I think that it should be a topic and it should be something that people are addressing and trying to pass some legislation of because you should be you should be able to say that James Dolan sucks and should sell the Knicks and be allowed to go watch a basketball game that is heavily subsidized by public tax dollars. I'm sorry, that's an absurdity. You should be able to do that. And it's not going to happen until there's pressure, but I think the pressure should, should have already started. Yeah. So why don't, we, why don't we take that as an opportunity to move into closing thoughts. Aaron, where are you at now? I think it's incredible how, so, so this is me speaking as someone who doesn't really watch sports yeah i think to, to, to people who are kind of sports skeptical or just don't care part of the part of the intuition is look these are just made up games with arbitrary rules why do you care who wins the made-up game i mean i mean i'm i'm speaking crudely but this this can be kind of how people who don't find it super compelling think and i and i'm sympathetic to this way of thinking especially when my dad you know, would shout really loudly growing up over a sports game. And I'd be like, why do you care? Like, this is all just made up, you know, but it's remarkable that a completely socially constructed kind of made up set of rules can become not only a a, a multi-billion dollar industry, but become such a microcosm for so many different aspects of our politics, right? I mean, we've covered wokeness, we've covered the tension between corporate power and democracy, we've covered surveillance, right? Like all of this stuff and China and, and globalization, it's it's astonishing how many major political issues and even you could argue kind of apocal civilizational issues find themselves expressed in and being kind of litigated and debated through sport. And I suppose that to the extent there's an upshot to that, it's that even nerds like me don't really. No, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, yeah, right. Read read Ethan Substack. But, but I mean, to the extent there's like a, a deeper upshot, it's that, it's that, it's that people like me who don't give a shit about sports, like on a kind of first order, which team wins level probably should still care about it from a kind of societal health level, because it actually does afford a, a very useful, almost 
laboratory for studying everything else kind of going on in our politics. So I guess this has made me marginally more pro-sport, if for, if for no other reason than that, it's anthropologically interesting and important. The first yes. step that Aaron has taken away from his eventual move to the San Francisco rationalist commune. <laughs> A running joke on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think my takeaway is just is 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 simpler, relatively straightforward. This is the political scientist Robert Conquest has a series of infamous laws, second of which reads. And here, I think I'm paraphrasing. I think I get it right. Any institution that's not explicitly and constitutionally conservative eventually becomes liberal, which you know has been my personal experience. And and you know, I think I think we talk a lot about incentives. We talk a lot about the structural character of things. But you know, part of part of Ethan's argument, of course, certainly at the beginning of the podcast, was like sports is a pretty intrinsically little c conservative institution. You know, it's it's masculine, it's aggressive, it's in hierarchy. We go on and on and on. And yet it's still ripe for colonization by forces larger than it. Yeah. Um, it suggests that ideology is, you know, the I tend to un, you know, I, I I tend to rate the influence of ideology pretty low. And I think at least in a cultural, you know, something that is such a, a cultural entity is is so wrapped up in culture, the meaning of which is so socially constructed as sports, you know, I should probably be rating ideology more highly than I tend to do. Well, could I just say, that, I mean, in some ways, my takeaway is almost, it's slightly the opposite, though, insofar as it seems like there actually has been some amount of pushback to the woke stuff from within sport, partly due to financial and structural incentives, and but also partly due to this just kind of eventual sense of everyone, all right, this has gone too far, you know. I we need a way out. Like, like it's, it's, it's not, I mean, it does seem to me like in some ways sports would actually be a bad example if you were trying to argue for conquest second law insofar as we've now seen that in about faces. You're both, right. you're, you're both right, I think. And I think you're both right that the idea that a completely non-egalitarian entity like sports could be colonized in such a way speaks to conquest second law. But I think Aaron is also right that sports is an entity that imposes natural limits in a way that NPR would not. I mean, it's in massive tension, which has been fruitful for my substack. But there is this internal paradox and this tension between the modern religion being so egalitarian and sports being the Darwinian cool hellscape opposite. It's just a house divided cannot stand, but God damn it, it's going to try for a while. Is my upshot. Yeah, I guess I guess what I would say I guess what I'm saying is certainly certainly other forces can push against it. It's just that if if you as I tend to downplay ideology being largely irrelevant, this should be this is a counterexample where ideology is clearly a sure. positive positive one. Or not that if not, if not always this positive one. Let's with that do some recommendations. Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? Yes. So my friend Wells King, who is now, he actually just started in the Senate this week as J.D. Vance's top policy advisor. Wells last year wrote a great essay in the American Conservative called The Decline and Fall of NASCAR. And we we touched in this episode on sort of the economics of sports, and he taught, goes into great detail on that and how kind of neoliberalism, both both as an economic project, but also as a cultural project, really hollowed out NASCAR, which is not, it's not quite like football, but it is a sport and, and uses NASCAR to kind of tell a, a larger story about the American heartland and what's happened to it. It's a very good essay, very richly researched, heartily recommend it. Um, I can't wait to read that essay. I, I guess I'll, I'll pitch in with, I had Luke Burgess on my podcast. He wrote, Watching the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. I think we, we talked about some mimesis on this particular podcast. It's a book that just does a great job of taking things that you've noticed, but you didn't necessarily have terminology for, yeah, giving you that Safir Wharf ability to give a name to it and conceptualize it. And it's just one of those books. And it also has a shocking example. To me, it was shocking of early woke capitalism from the 1920s of how a corporation managed to get women smoking cigarettes under this idea of it being progressive and change the culture by doing so through starting this mimetic desire. So I would I would recommend that book, Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And of course, my own podcast, the House of Strauss podcast. No, not podcast, Substack, whatever, both. 
Yes, that as well. Self-serving, subscribe today. Oh, and I'm trying to sound intellectual. I would reference Heidinga, Homo Ludin, where he was writing about how play is this source of cultural generation and the magic circle, these, these moments, these places where we can be under a spell, doing something as silly as sports is actually quite important for culture. And I think that was quite prescient because we're effectively talking about that today. I, I will end this on a, on, a, on a light note recommendation. And my recommendation is for all our listeners to consider patronizing their local college and minor league sports games. I can recommend not only the college women's basketball, University of Maryland college women's basketball game that I attended last weekend, which was $8 a ticket. The best date I ever took my wife on when we were dating, and we still date now, again, we go on dates now, but the best date I took my wife on when, before we got married, we went to Costco for dinner. And then we went ah. to a minor league baseball game, the Nashua Silver Knights in Nashville, New Hampshire. We got two of our tickets. There were four or five of us seeing the game. We got two of the tickets free, hot dogs and beers. I think the whole night cost me $30. And we had a blast. That's my, uh, I, you know, I think there, it's, 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 a, it's an underutilized source of cheap entertainment. With all that, Ethan, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry for rambling so much. These topics, man. These That's okay. Really we love it. No, this is great. This is it. great. All about it. Thank you. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, season contracts that you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. Hope you'll join us again soon. 